Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And to begin, I'd like to thank Loaded for Travel for their generous donation directly to the salon to help offset some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. As for my patrons who are supporting my writing projects, I'm pleased to report that the following fellow saloners will have their names posted in the front of my next book. And I should point out that while sometimes a person's financial situation changes and they have to stop their monthly donations, well, as long as someone has made a donation for only one month even, their names are going to be listed as well. Anyway, here are my newest supporters whose full names will also appear in the front of Volume 2 of my Chronicles when it's published later this year. And they are Logan W., Ricky B., RFS, Mark R., Sergio F., Mother Green Father Blue, and Jordan R. Now, uh, for today's podcast, we're going to pick up on the March 1996 Terrence McKenna workshop that we began listening to in Podcast 573. And I'd like to repeat that this set of recordings was sent to me by Ian Wynn, the author of the newly re-released edition of The Techno-Pagan Octopus Messiah. Ian tells me that the inspiration for this book arose when he attended the very workshop that we are now listening to. And I'll put a link to his website in today's program notes, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.com. Now, about halfway through this talk, Terrence makes a joke that I suspect the psychedelic version of Alex Jones is going to use to further his conspiracy theory about Terrence being a CIA... <laughs> I can't even say that with a straight face. His conspiracy theory that Terrence was a CIA asset. And uh, by the way, if you do happen to believe such foolishness, then uh, I'd like to speak with you about this bridge that my family and I have for sale in Manhattan. I can make you a really good deal on it if you want to pay cash. <laughs> well, uh, that's enough of my foolishness for now. And I'll be back after we listen to this part of his workshop uh, to further expand on my attempt to smile in the face of foolishness. And uh, speed seems to expand people's tolerance for sexual activity that they would ordinarily refuse. They will accept under speed. So these compounds change our sexual values around and a society using psilocybin on a regular basis would dissolve this male dominance hierarchy and replace it, I think, with the glue of an orgiastic and more egalitarian system. And for a long, long time, we lived like that. And in that period when we lived like that, language, music, uh, compassion, love, all the higher values emerged. Well, then, at some point, and for complicated reasons not necessary to discuss, unless you want to, uh, the mushrooms disappeared. And the chemical fix that had been in place for thousands and thousands of years that was suppressing this older male-dominant style of behavior just drained out of the system. And suddenly, 
men were very interested in controlling women's behavior and the orgies were canceled and the levels of anxiety began to rise and people began to think in terms of turf and property and my children and my food and uh, in short the hideous union of the animal and the spiritual that we meet in ourselves came into being we are like the inheritors of a dysfunctional childhood or something. Something terrible happened to all of us in our past. For a hundred thousand years, we were at our most human, without material culture, living in a world of magic and song and sexuality and uh, husbandry, you know, living lightly on the land, herding cattle uh, in the presence of mushrooms. This seems to be, that was the climax of the of the uh, pre-technical phase. Well, then agriculture changed all that, created surpluses, ended nomadism, provided a raison d'etre for cities. The return of male dominance ended in god kings and standing armies. Uh, and then, you know, We've had 5,000 years of this now, 6,000, 7,000, whatever, and we're at the end of our rope, you know? We, the planet is at crisis. Our politicians are clueless. Uh, divine intervention is our best hope, either from flying saucers or the second coming or something. And in the presence of so much obvious, overwhelming difficulty, uh, people are turning more and more toward irrational faiths and just waiting for the space brothers to pull us out of this mess. Uh, His penis was starting to shrink. Oh, yeah. Um, well, you know, to quote a Grateful Dead song, you can't go back and you can't stand still. If the thunder don't get you, then the lightning will. <laughs> Uh, this thing has was set in motion a hundred thousand years ago, and uh, now we are caught in the consequences of our forebears' stupid decisions or brilliant decisions, whatever. But we're being forced through. I mean, I, I agree that uh, there's a lot of cue force building up in the in the society. In other words, vibration. It's almost like as you try to push an airfoil through the sound barrier, as you approach hypersonic velocity, the thing begins to shake. And if it hasn't been correctly designed, the wings will tear off. But if it has been correctly designed, the cue force will maximize and then very suddenly plummet, and that's called breaking the sound barrier, and you're through. It's very clear that this culture is revving up to attempt the leap into hyperspace. And it's either going to succeed and we will become unrecognizable to ourselves and scatter through the galaxy as motes of light, or uh, we will fail and probably biology will cancel the R&D division on intelligent life and go back to ground squirrels, chipmunks, and monarch butterflies. That's worked so well for so long. Yeah. I understand a little bit uh, the physics idea of you know um, matter uh, seeking some sort of organization and then seeking a disorganization, kind of the 
the back and forth ebb and flow and makes me wonder about computers and the internet and the world wide web, how now we're trying to structure ourselves in a in, in something that seems to be going against the human grain and uh, why do you think it goes against the human grain? Well it's artificial. It's um, well, we invented artificiality. <laughs> I mean, I don't disagree with you. I, uh, somebody pointed something out to me recently that I find very interesting. They pointed out that in a cubic inch of forest soil, there's about uh, 11,000 miles of mycelial wiring. Now, we're building something called the Internet, and furiously laying copper and fiber optic everywhere, and soon it will go wireless. I think that this net that we're building is not the most artificial construction ever conceived. It's a simulacrum of nature, is what it is. Nature is the original internet. I mean, nature is some kind of interconnected, communicating, data routing, self-regulating, non-equilibrium system. And as we go nanotech, as we descend to the molecular level, our teachers are going to be plants, viruses, bacteria. They know how to do it down there, and we don't. And I think that the artificial phase of technology is simply that, a phase. Remember in um, Arthur C. Clarke's book, The City of the S and the Stars, the central dictum of that society, and it had been a rule followed for a million years, was no machine shall have any moving part. And... Uh, that's coming and those are machines we can barely imagine and they will be you know smaller than a gnat's eyelash so uh the artificial natural thing seems to me a synthetic dualism in fact all dualisms are synthetic because at least in my book there is a there is some kind of neoplatonic one that lies behind all the lesser understandings that give us category. Well, I think, you know, what nature teaches and what life teaches is that worry is preposterous. <laughs> worry is a form of egomania because in order to worry, you have to assume you understand the situation. What are the odds that you actually do understand the situation? very low, I would think, and the more abstract the worry, you know, I'm worrying about, you know, Ratkam Ladic, and he's running around free over there in a country I've never seen. Now, is this a sane thing for me to be worrying about? I don't, I don't think so. Uh, worry is preposterous, and how I've understood that is I'm not a fatalist or a predestination person, predestination is preposterous because if the world is absolutely predestined then you think what you think because you couldn't think anything else that makes the quest for truth somewhat pointless in order for there to be truth there has to be error uh, otherwise how would we know truth so uh, uh, 
Well, that's probably enough on that. Yeah. I think maybe the last couple of comments and then my own are, are positing a third way, which is not the technique of these um, aesthetic practices in religion or even psychedelics, but more a way of being in which one is open and receptive to the um, incredible patterns that exist within life and within wilderness. And, and maybe this is the, the shamans who don't need psychedelics are able to contact that and my own experience in providing a very safe experience for myself alone with a great deal of solitude in wilderness is that things happen which are absolutely magical and it seems to come out of my willingness to play and to imagine and to love the things in my environment and that's a little bit what you're talking about with your experience and I would like that to be considered as a as a viable way of achieving the the unity and the love of these um, of life that you're talking. Well, the key thing I think in what you said was to be open and aware. Uh, you can go to the wilderness, and it it, it it's harder for some people than others, but psychedelics certainly make it easier. Uh, I mean, I've sat, it's, it, it makes it simply, like with LSD in wilderness, what I found is it simply makes it possible to sit still an unearthly amount of time. And that's all you have to do for it all to, to go on. As soon as you disappear into the landscape, then stuff begins to happen. I mean, amazing things go on. I sat once on a beach in Asia, uh, stoned on LSD, and a uh, a little crab came along and cleaned my fingernails. Every one of them. It just moved from fingernail to fingernail. And it had this little claw and it etched them out. And it took a long time. And I was just just like this. And it would climb down one finger, go out to the other one, finish, go down here. And it, you know, how... Only Buddha or LSD can give you that kind of t- power to sit still. <laughs> I think it's, um, and maybe I've misunderstood people, but I think it's a really weird construct to dichotomize humans from nature. We don't say that ants or the termites have separated themselves up by, from nature by building a termite hill, which is, which is a really good skyscraper for termites. And why, why all of a sudden when we put, when man goes out and builds a skyscraper and puts himself in it, he no longer participates in nature, it's, it seems so strange to me. I mean, because we're in a terrarium. Well, it's not we, like we can go leave. It's just... We, we have... We have uh, it's such a weird thing to me to say that if you do certain things, sitting on the rock is in nature, sitting at the top of the World Trade Center is not. I mean, we can't judge that. We can't judge it. It just seems so strange to me. Well, there are two, there's a categorical difference that people sense but can't always articulate. And what it is, is uh, nature is a genetic machine of some sort. Everything is under the control of genes, except that when you get to human beings, there are these things called epigenetic behaviors. In other words, how you make a Chevrolet is not written into the DNA of human beings. The anthill is a genetic program. 
but what we are is freakily out of control of our genetic heritage. We don't behave like automata. We speak many languages. That's unheard of. Uh, a species which has more, which has localized communication systems, and yet that's how we do it. There is no human universal way of communicating. We've culturally fragmented that. Pardon me? Have local dialects? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, see, I think there's, I mean, and I don't want to get into huge arguments, but there's, there's, you know... Oh, no, don't be shy. <clears throat> different tribes of gorilla crack nuts differently. Okay? I mean, it's not just a human characteristic. There are some that use a, a rock and a log, put the nut in the log and they crack it. And there are other gorillas that can't crack nuts. And there are other gorillas... I mean, I mean, just because something is epigenetic does not mean it's a part of nature. Right? It's, it, I mean, no, I agree, with, I agree with you. But I say people sense this difference. It would be quite astonishing if there were no epigenetic behavior outside of human beings. That would indicate it was some kind of descent from above. But I think when nature is fully understood... There will be no dramatic transitions. Everything is anticipated. Everything is sort of, it begins as a theme and then rises to dominate uh, the orchestra. Uh, the other and more exciting possibility is that we are entirely under the control of higher order genetic programming and that history is a genetic process that has a purpose and that it is like gestation or fruition or something and that and uh, you know a good example to have in your intellectual toolbox is the slime mold slime molds are these organisms which have a very peculiar life cycle uh, let's cut in at a random point in their life cycle and what we find are amoeba-like creatures, almost microscopic, living in the soil, the decaying leaves and stuff of the forest floor. They look like single-celled amoeba. But at a certain point, one of these individual amoeba undergoes some kind of uh, stimulus. It's not well understood. And it begins to emit a chemical signal which says come to where I am. And these amoebas, which may be spread out over a few square yards of the forest floor, they all begin to congregate at this spot where this chemical signal is being broadcast from. And as they arrive by the millions, the original cell and the first arrivals on the scene are literally lifted into the air by the arrival of millions and millions of individuals. And this thing forms, which is a couple of inches long and has a pointed stalk on it. And now we're looking at a macrophysical organism with a weight in grams. And uh, it then sporulates and bursts and these spores spread out through the air and descend to the forest floor and become these free-living amoeboid things, and the whole cycle starts over again. So this is, what is this? Is this an animal that is dissolved into its cells at one stage of its existence, or is it millions of animals that at one stage of their existence aggregate together to form 
something roughly analogous to a human city. Uh, I prefer the, the, pre, the former explanation. It seems to me that... Um, and, and we are like that. And history could well be a process like that. Uh, something is torn loose in our species having to do with information processing and coding. And we, have, we, have a, we literally have a symbiotic relationship with the word. And Western civilization begins, you know, in principio ad verbum ad verbo caro factum est. In the beginning was the word and the word is made flesh. So we're like the carriers of this strange relationship to a logos, a, a kind of mind that doesn't seem to be made of matter, but that seems to permeate this planet. And various cultures in contact this on various levels. I mean, this is, this is the spirit world of the shaman. This is the logos world of the Greek uh, golden age, so forth and so on. And some societies call it God, and some call it Gaia, and some call it illusion. But all societies are aware of it as a, as a potential experience. I think history has a purpose and that the obvious no way backness of it indicates that it, it is some kind of process that is uh, it is designed. It is not a random walk. It's not the accumulation of endless blunders. It actually has a, a purpose and an intent and it's a style. And when it is fulfilled... It will be uh, it will be replaced by something else. Yeah, do you all understand? The meme is uh, a kind of you could say it's the basic. If genes are the basic units of biology, memes are the basic units of ideology and culture. So fascism is a meme. Uh, Madonna is a meme. Uh, all ideologies and all uh, uh, short-term cultural phenomena are memes, and these memes compete. Whatever happened to Boy George? That kind of thing, you know. Apparently, uh, some go extinct, and some, and they can be replicated. I mean, when I tell you, when you repeat my opinion, it means you have copied the meme in the same way that you could copy a gene. And when I write a book, I am replicating my inner memes and sending out thousands of copies, somewhat analogous to a virus. And so inside society, these memes are competing. Uh, that's, what, that's what Buchanan means when he talks about cultural war. It's the meme war that he's talking about. Shall we be white, Christian, upright, rectitudinous human beings, or shall we be dope-smoking, homoerotic? These are all memes. And uh, as you said very well, they compete. And the human world is an environment in which these memes compete. And uh, hopefully over time, there is some kind of maximization of something. I don't want to say progress, although casually people speak of progress, like we're supposed to believe that Heidegger is somehow has a deeper insight into reality than, well, I don't know, I wouldn't say Plato. That I don't think there's been progress there. But who? Who? What? 
<laughs> was a bad example. <laughs> the psychedelic meme is a perfect example. I mean, that's a very strong, coherent, definable meme. It's been furiously suppressed, but continues to survive. It's a healthy meme. Uh, it's able to infect rapidly and spread through populations, and somehow they accrue some benefit to it, and uh, and so it's preserved. I don't know how we got off on this. Um, anybody else? Anything else? We still haven't really gotten to what I plan to talk about this morning, and we're almost done. That's a good sign. Well, it was basically just to, to make sure you're fully up to speed on the psychedelic options available. No pun intended. Uh, for example, if you have a problem with the illegality of some of these substances, then alpha-salvinorine or salvia divinorum is a new plant and a new compound on the scene, not scheduled, not illegal, perfectly okay to grow, possess, advocate, give people, so forth and so on, and uh, quite radical uh, dislocation of the senses in Rambeau's phrase uh, occurs with this. It also has some interesting technical aspects to it, the most impressive being it's active at the one milligram level, a thousand micrograms of this stuff, and it's smoke. So this is a one milligram smokable psychedelic that knocks the pins out from under you pretty dramatically for about 45 minutes. Uh, the leaf can be chewed, the plant can be grown as a house plant, um, so forth and so on. So that's one option that's available. The other thing you might... Salvia divinorum, yeah. I'm growing some. Somebody gave me a plant. And so what do I do with it? How do I... If you just want to take the, the leaf, get some big leaves, and there's some controversy about how much you need or whether a lot is more than a little. Uh, but anyway, I took 35 grams. So, and, but it was a huge mouthful, I must say. So try 20 grams and weigh it remove the mid-vein so it loses volume, roll it up into a package and shove it in your mouth and lie down in darkness and slowly squeeze and chew it in order to expel this juice into your mouth and lie still. And after about 15 or 20 minutes, you'll see what's called streaming, violet blobs of light sliding past your eyes. You see this after orgasm sometimes, and you see it in anticipation of psychedelics often. So that will happen. And about three minutes after that, it becomes dramatically visionary and quite bizarre. I mean, on a par with DMT, these stretching, sucking, liquid things, and very bright hallucinations and interesting to me I've never had this with any other compound uh, I was sitting in darkness in a house with a big pyramidal skylight and the moonlight shining in the perfect circumstance for hallucinating with eyes open sharp edges against darkness eyes open there was absolutely nothing going on 
I would close my eyes and it was as dramatic as turning on a light. It was that quick. There was no transition. It was just I would close my eyes and here would be these slowly undulating three-dimensional tunnels and recessional surfaces and stuff. So I find it quite fascinating. And then to the chemist, it's extremely fascinating because it's in a class of compounds unknown to contain psychoactive compounds. Well, now they're going back into it and with... um, Liquid CO2 chromatography, very cold solvent chromatography, which is very uh, precise and non-destructive. They're finding a whole family of these salvinorine compounds. And what this will lead to in terms of psychedelics, treatments for mental illness, who knows, you know? It's amazing that 30 years, 40 years into the psychedelic revolution, we would discover not a new compound, Sasha does that three times a week, but a new family, a new chemical family with psychoactivity. That, that is, that's a new continent in the world of neuropsychopharmacology. And then the other thing is, that people are doing that is very shamanic and challenging and good thing to do is uh, you probably all know about ayahuasca, this South American combinatory thing where a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, Banisteriopsis capi, is combined with a source of tryptamine, DMT, usually Socotria viridis. And because of the MAO inhibition in the gut, the tryptamine, which would normally be destroyed at that point, it passes through into the blood stream and then passes the blood-brain barrier. So you can make DMT orally active if you complex it with an MAO inhibitor. Well, a whole bunch of people have realized that in, every, in most environments in the world, there are tryptamine sources. And so if you could combine them with an MAO inhibitor, you could create local variants on Amazonian ayahuasca. And they call this pharmawaska, uh, or uh, anawaska, meaning analog ayahuasca. And uh, what people are doing and is they're using pagamin harmala as the MAO inhibitor, the seeds of pagamin harmala. These are little black seeds, and you can get them from seed companies, or you can get them at Iranian markets, and they call it hormal, hormal. And it's sold in Iranian markets to be thrown on hot charcoal to fumigate rooms. I mean, this is just a traditional use of it. It kills fleas. It's a very nice-smelling thing and a kind of an incense. Well, if you take two grams of these little black seeds and grind them down, they, that will inhibit your MAO very effectively. And now, any DMT-containing plant that you orally ingest will become active. And it turns out that DMT is very, very common in nature. It's the commonest of all hallucinogens in nature. It occurs in numerous grasses, in uh, uh, leguminous trees. It occurs in the rubiaceae. 
it occurs in the Meristocasi, on and on, huge families implicated in this. It even occurs in certain species of fish. It occurs in human metabolism. This is interesting, a Schedule One drug that you are carrying around in your body, every man, woman, and child on this planet. Kind of the ultimate catch-22. Everybody is breaking the law. You must have realized that anyway. Uh, so uh, these things can be complex together. Now, some of the DMT sources that you might want to be aware of are phalaris grasses, these are prairie grasses, and some of these strains are pretty stiff. Red turkey is a, is a strain of Phalaris arundinaceae that is pretty, pretty potent. Um, there's a plant called Desmanthus elenoiensis, the Illinois bundle weed, which apparently was not used by the North American Indians. It's only been about four years that it has been discovered that the root bark of this plant is intensely uh, contains DMT. And wild crafters are now collecting it, and you can buy uh, that plant. If you go to Mexico, uh, there's a material sold in Mexican pharmacies called tepescohuite, which is the root bark of, of Mimosa hostilis, the same plant implicated in Brazil in a cult call of a drug called Vino de Yarima, Jarema, Jarema. Uh, that is a very mysterious and not well understood DMT preparation taken orally, apparently without an MAO inhibitor. Or the MAO inhibitor must also be present in the single plant from which it's prepared. Uh, other sources of DMT, uh, Lespedeza bicolor, that's a clover-like ground cover. Um, those are probably uh, the main ones. So people are experimenting with these things and making pharmawaska and in some cases getting off. I mean, there's a lot of clenched guts and uh, you know hanging over the porcelain bowl in this line of research but if you hit it right uh, you'd be very gratified yeah well that's the great thing about having an underground you get human data that you could never get in a situation of government licensing because people are willing to take chances i i have i had a real bummer one time i took half a dose of mushrooms and half a dose of ayahuasca. And uh, it had me praying for mercy. It, it, it was lo not like anything I've ever... I've seen some weird territory. But what this was, was apparent, as I analyzed it later, what must have been happening was short-term memory simply was not transcripting. And so I was sitting there, stoned out of my mind, and then this thought would come something's wrong, something's wrong. So then I would search through pulse, heartbeat, nothing's wrong. You say, oh, nothing's wrong, okay. And you go back to the trip. Fifteen seconds later, something's wrong. You say, nothing's wrong. You know? And it, it got loopier and loopier. And, t and I had, remember that amazing scene in 2001 where the guy is outside the ship and he says, uh, open the pod door, Hal. And he says, 
I can't do that, Dave. <laughs> and I had this image of the molecular machinery jammed. I could almost see it. I could see the molecule locked in the, in the synaptic receptor cleft, and it, it was like... And I was, it was building toward panic. And I finally, I just, I somehow got hold of myself. And I had a picture, which I'm sure you've all had this picture, of myself in a locked ward somewhere. Uh, just they check in once every 36 hours and wash down the walls. Uh, so, and then I, so I just said, I'm just going to sit here until it leaves. And I did. And after about an hour of real hell, it, you could just almost feel it click and begin to drift out of the receptor and then the chemical, the pharmacokinetic dynamics of the thing cutting. said, oh, we're going to live to tell the tale, apparently. Yeah. There is a wildflower that grows in the spring in fields in California. That when I, I don't know the name of it. little purple flowers. And if, allowed, if the plant's allowed to continue to grow, it becomes a woody stem green leaf, sort of a sage green, with a stem of little purple flowers. I'm sure some of you must know what it is. They also come occasionally in yellow. When I walk through a field of those, I smell DMT. I know that DMT is there somewhere, but I have no idea. I'm sure you're right. I mean, I, there's, a, there's a yellow flowering tropical bahania in a bot garden near where I live in Hawaii. And the smell is, it just rivets you when you walk by. And many times I've been in the Amazon, like uh, walking along a trail in the late afternoon, and suddenly it will just hit you. It's just, and strangely enough, smell is an incredibly imprecise sense. Standing in a jungle, smelling a strange smell and asking the question, what makes this smell? There are thousands of sources, you know, you look around, you have no idea. But, yeah, I think it occurs in, in, as, um, as a volatile in flowers, as some kind of an attractant. It has a sweet, sharp, indolic smell that's very piercing. Yeah. What's Syrian rue? Syrian rue is pagamon harmala that plant I mentioned as the source of an MAO inhibitor. If you're interested in making these, doing experiments, becoming a shaman slash alchemist and experimenting with making your own pharmawaska, get Jonathan Ott's book called Ayahuasca Analogues. I think they have it, some copies here. And uh, he describes his self-experiments and uh, it's a little book, very useful. It's very satisfying, I might say, to, to make your own stuff. I mean, I wrote a book with my brother years ago called Psilocybin, the Magic Mushroom Grower's Guide. Growing it is really a wonderful uh, experience. I mean, I don't want to advocate it absolutely because you could be dragged away to the can for years. There's that little detail. Uh, but absent that... The way you experience the organism when you grow it is incredible yes. because you, <clears throat> you take a, a $25 sack of rye, a human food, that's all it is. You buy it at the organic grocery. It's a human food. You take it home. 
you have this snowy white mycelium. It's this pure, it, it, it's a symbol of purity, it's whiteness. And it will convert it, 12% dry weight, into Tanonakatl, the flesh of the gods, you know, the doorway into the mysterium. And uh, so it's, it, and it, it gets you out of the cycle of criminal syndicalism that inevitably accrues to fancy dope dealing. Uh, you have produced it. You know every stage of its uh, unfoldment, and you have a very strong relationship with it. The other thing is growing mushrooms teaches all kinds of virtues which serve you very well while tripping. Virtues like constancy, attention to detail, uh, patience, uh, so forth and so on. So if you're wondering if you sh should take mushrooms and you're really in a dilemma about it, grow them. If you can grow them, you can take them. I mean, that is the certain entry into it. And of course, there's a certain mystical faith that we who grow are somehow more deeply in the service of this thing than those who simply trip. Uh, that's probably bullshit, but it keeps us at the knife and the flame. There's a Papa Mama feeling about it, bringing little heads up. Well, when you see a large mushroom project go into fruiting, it's awesome. It's awesome. The power of this thing, what a workhorse this organism is. This thing, is, it's so efficient. I mean, imagine 12% conversion of rye to psilocybin. To put that in perspective, that $25 bag of rye becomes $35,000 six weeks later at current market prices. Uh, I mean, not to bring the mundane in here, uh, but there's nothing wrong with feeding your children either and uh, staying off welfare and so forth and so on. Uh, did you want to say something? Did you want to say something? No. no. Karen, how, much, how, much trouble have you, how much irritation have you had from the government because of your public stand and you're easily identified and all that sort of thing. Well, now, this will be a hard swallow for all of us because the great faith of our culture is that paranoia is never inappropriate. Um, none. None. Ever. I don't know what that means. I'm paranoid enough to assume it must mean I work for them. Uh, how else could that be possible? The other possibility is that they are even stupider than we suppose. I mean, I've used to say, you know, I just use big words, that's all. That, they don't clock that. It never appears on their screen. Another possibility, which should, is equally humbling to all of us, is that this isn't worth bothering with. You know, some freewheeling Irish bullshit artist and his docile flock uh, who cares, you know? I sort of have the idea that there's something called uh, there's something called the five percent rule, and 
And it's that you can believe anything, advocate anything, practice anything, and as long as you don't gain adherence of greater than 5% of the population, you do not become a budgetary item for repression unless you start gassing subway stations or murdering judges or something. And then, of course, you have to be uh, dealt with. But it is effective. Um, I mean, I worked with paramedics for five, six years, and we get Tylenol overdoses. And you know, the sad thing about it is, is most people are making private health thinking, no, it's just Tylenol. You know, they'll be able to do something for me, and they can't. Scary stuff. Lots of Prozac admissions. From um, That's interesting. Uh, well, Prozac is a very... Uh, peculiar drug in the sense that it never seems to work the same way twice. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. It, I, I think it, um, I think timing is very important with Prozac. I really think Prozac hasn't been understood. It's being used to treat depression. I think what it is is it's the magic bullet for, uh, what is it called, seasonal light deficit syndrome. Hmm. I just think we are not supposed to be living this far north and that every year we go through a culturally managed depression called winter or holidays. And people say, you know, why do I feel like shit? And there are a million reasons. But the real reason is because you're not in the tropics, dude. And uh, <clears throat> I, I took Prozac uh, in the past and the feeling when everything was stripped away, I said, you know, what is this feeling that this drug gives me? It's the feeling that it's summertime. It, you, your body tells you that it's the good old summertime. And, uh, you know, your body likes being told that. I think it's terrible. I live in Hawaii, uh, and so I'm very aware every September uh, the media of course, has a totally mainland cast. And so every September, you say, the media starts talking about how, well, summer's over now, we're all going back to school, and uh, the, you know, the sports are changing, and everything is changing. And you can just feel in the tone, aha, they're fixing them all over there. They're getting them ready for another winter. And I just channel surf. We don't need to be hyped about how well it's another winter coming. So I think a lot of people are depressed in the wintertime. And Prozac, and of course it's targeting serotonin reuptake. And serotonin, this is not air, serotonin has a complex light-mediated chemistry in the pineal. This is all about light, strangely enough. This serotonin deep pineal hydroxytryptamine chemistry. Melanin which gives you your suntan, is a, a further breakdown product of melatonin, which is a conversion from serotonin to melatonin that goes on in the pineal, mediated by a harmine-like enzyme called adenoroglomerotropane by the physiologist, but called by the chemists 6-methoxy-tetrahydroharmalan. And there is actually a part of the optic pathway that breaks off and carries physical light into the center of your brain in order to drive this pineal chemistry. That's why 
light and depression are so dramatically linked. I mean, there's actually a lot, light actually gets into your pineal gland and there uh, mediates certain chemical processes. Well, the morning has fled as they always do. Enjoy your afternoon. We'll be back here at four. And uh, if you don't like the way this is going, come armed with questions and agendas. Thank you. So I hope you're enjoying Esalen and making good use of your time one way or another. This evening we'll talk about the, uh, the time wave. I see the computer is in the room, so assuming we can get it up and running, uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, before I get started this afternoon, I just I want to give you my URL so that uh, you can find the website. The, the website is really my substitute for myself, and I'm trying to make it more interesting than I am by far. And I've only been at it a year, but it's already up over 15 megabytes and growing. And the idea is that if I have some enthusiasm, I put it on the website, and then even though my interests may wander elsewhere and I no longer care about reform in the Seychelles or something else, it's there in its pristine form, spell-checked, illustrated, hair-combed. That's the way we want to be seen. So, um, and there are many, many pointers to everything from developments in AI to pharmacology to nasty pictures uh, because it's a huge website. So uh, if some part of what is touched on here, physics, mathematics, chemistry, sociology, you want to follow up, uh, go to the website and uh, there will be a button there for you. So just to take one of these and hand them around and uh, that'll probably do it for the whole group. <clears throat> do you all understand what a URL is? A uniform resource locator? Exactly. It's easy to tell you much more. <laughs> <laughs> well, but at least you know. <laughs> it's, it's the address, as it were, of the website on the internet, on the World Wide Web. This guy's for real. He's alive. He'll talk to me. Wow. You mean because you imagine people who write books reside in some seventh heaven, uh, unaccessible by normal human beings? Well, or just inundated with too much stuff to bother with, you know, with a question about your writing. It's great. It's great stuff. Yeah, well, it's nice to get questions. Uh, to put the greatness of writers in perspective, uh, I'll tell you a story about the last time I dealt with my publisher at Bantam in New York, uh, sitting across from those people uh, above the 50th floor, how I come off to them is, well, now let's see, Mr. McKenna, we have current sales figures in front of us. Uh, you're kind of a 60,000 copy kind of guy, aren't you? And frankly, Mr. McKenna, around here that really butters no bread. Uh, <laughs> we're interested in the million-plus seller. We can carry people like you, of course, uh, given that we have uh, substantial successes in other fields. 
but, and on and on like that, to which I replied, so I guess you're not taking me to dinner at Elaine's, <laughs> which was true. <clears throat> not even tea. Well, is there anything out of this morning that anybody wants to take up? Uh, yeah, I had um, a question when you were talking about growing um, psilocybin and then or growing mushrooms, and I um, it just kind of sparked something in me. Do you have um, a connection with the Davic realms, the nature spirits? Is that something that comes up for you in this work? Or? Well, I don't know. Is a self-transforming elf machine a deva? This is a phrase that has been associated with me for many, many years. Uh, I encounter self-transforming elf machines, uh, which are creatures, entities, perhaps, although they're not made out of matter. They're made out of, as nearly as I can figure it out, they're made out of syntax driving light. But if what your question addresses is the issue of entities on the other side, uh, there are definitely entities on the other side uh, for me, and there seem to be such for many, many other people. I'm not in any, by any standard sensitive, so if I get entities, then they are substantial and capable of defending themselves. It's one of the most challenging parts of the whole psychedelic landscape because most people can accept the idea of disordered sensory input, recovery of traumatic memory material, so forth and so on. But what are we to do with an elf? You know, that becomes a little harder to contextualize in psychoanalytic theory, although Jung did a good job when he said autonomous elements can escape from the psyche's control and present themselves as independent entities. Um, I'm not sure he's ever seen uh, a self-transforming elf machine. Are those Davic entities, do you think? Yeah, um, I I don't have any hallucinogenic experience um, myself. I'm more familiar with uh, connections in nature and other experiences that people have had um, in Horn Group or being in the Himalayas, that kind of thing. So, I what you're saying is through your experiences with um, pharmaceuticals you have that experience, even if you're not having it when you're not? Oh, it's, it's the defining characteristic of the true DMT flash. I mean, it is not subtle. It's these things mob you like badly trained Rottweilers. They come bounding forward by the dozens, by the hundreds. They jump into your body. They jump out of your body. They... and I thought, you know, I mean, it maps to some degree over the archetype of the little people, the leprechaun, the fae, and being Irish and being Jungian, I'm willing to entertain, you know, maybe I have a special uh, relationship to this stuff, 
but then in the Amazon, the people using DMT that I studied in the early 70s, the reason they did it, they said, was to, t to speak with the little people. Uh, what puzzles me about my contacts with these beings is it, it conforms to, let's say, the Irish model. They are small, they live under hills, or when you're with them, you have a sense that you are somehow underground. They are full of merriment, almost to a manic and frightening level. It's sort of like a Bugs Bunny cartoon gone berserk. They are friendly, but play rough. In other words, it's a land of explosions and falling anvils. It's uh, like a roadrunner cartoon or something. But the overwhelming feeling is love, but I spell it L-U-V to distinguish it from the ordinary kind because it's just this kind of crazy childish affection. And they're delighted to have me in their presence. Well, now that all sort of corresponds with the Irish model or with worldwide folklore of little creatures, little people in the woods. Mm -hmm. What's happening that is not mappable onto fairyland or leprechauns or Findhornian beings or anything like that or anything else I've ever heard of is that these entities have an agenda. And it's a very curious agenda. They use a language which you see. You don't, you, it is made out of sound. In other words, it's, it, it, it is sound, but you see it in that state. And the entire point of the encounter from their perspective seems to be to teach you to do this. They want you to transform your language. They want you to speak elfish. And, you know, what? If you've never done DMT and you just smoked it and you're 30 seconds into this experience and, it's, and this is what it's come down to, uh, you wonder what to make of it. I've thought about this for years and years and years and... I don't know why there should be an invisible syntactical intelligence giving language lessons in hyperspace, uh, but uh, that, that certainly consistently seems to be what is happening. I've thought a lot about language as a result of that, and I <clears throat> several things about it. First of all, it is the most remarkable thing we do. I think. And we talked a little bit this morning about epigenetic behaviors. Chomsky showed that language, the deep structure of language is under genetic control. But the, the, that's like the assembly language level. Local expressions of language are epigenetic. Uh, and it seems to me that language is some kind of enterprise of human beings that is not finished, that we have, we have now left the grunts and the digs of the elbow somewhat in the dust, but the most articulate, brilliantly,
pronounced and projected the English or French or German or Chinese is still a poor carrier of our intent, a very limited bandwidth for the intense compression of data that we are trying to put across to each other. And it occurs to me from studying McLuhan and other people that the ratios of the senses, the ratio between the eye and the ear and so forth, this also is not genetically fixed. There are ear cultures and there are eye cultures, print cultures and electronic cultures. So it may be that uh, our perfection and our completion lies in the perfection and completion of the word. Again, this curious theme of the word and its effort to concretize itself. A language that you can see is far less ambiguous than a language that you hear. If I read the paragraph of Proust, then we could spend the rest of the afternoon discussing what did he mean. But if we look at a piece of sculpture by Henry Moore, we can discuss what did he mean, but at a certain level there is a kind of shared bedrock that isn't in the Proust passage. We each stop at a different level with the textual passage. With the three-dimensional object, we all sort of start from the same place and then work out our interpretations. You know, is it a nude? Is it an animal? Uh, Is it bronze? Is it wood? Is it poignant? Is it comical? So forth and so on. So uh, this is, you know, not a very scientific part of the rap because it's very hard to convince people that there are non-human intelligences this side of Gnebel Ganubi. And when you tell them that these non-human intelligences are accessed through the diminutive mushrooms growing on their front lawn, they just write you off as a squirrel. Uh, but this question of the non-human intelligences is very, very much on the agenda. All shamans in all times and places have, uh, have claimed this. And the thing that so pleases me about DMT is, you know, a lot of people will not take a psychedelic like LSD or psilocybin or something because it lasts hours and hours inevitably a thing lasting that long you're going to end up dealing with your stuff your anxiety your fear your this and that a lot of people don't care for that sort of thing whether that's good or bad is another issue with DMT it lasts four minutes and so how how lost in an examination of childhood trauma can you get in four minutes, especially when you have hundreds of elves tugging at your coat sleeves? So it's, uh, it's really an incredibly powerful tool. You know, we have the UFO people claiming there are non-human intelligences, but they have no method of, a reliable method of contact that works for a skeptic. The great thing about DMT is it doesn't require belief, a quality I mentioned last night as belonging to the truth. The truth requires no belief. It is the truth. Um, I'm sure there are probably people listening to my words at this moment who have 
encountered these entities. Uh, this, to my mind, is, is the great and chilling mystery in the center of the psychedelics. And once you've encountered these things, you have to take them seriously. Uh, to the point of you have to understand where do they fit into the great order of being? What are these things? How can there be a life form not made of matter? In other words, how can they be intelligent and coherent but have no fixed body outline? Uh, are they... Is the universe in fact populated by non-human non-material intelligences that we somehow contact using drugs? I mean, that's one possibility. That's an, the question, yes. Where are they when you're not there? Uh, is it an ongoing thing? Are they... Is something going on on this planet? Are these the controllers? Are you getting into a back channel that you're not... weren't cleared for? Uh, uh, or... And this is, to my mind, the most chilling and appalling and exhilarating possibility of all. When you go back over the shamanism thing, you say, you know, you shamans, now where is this all coming from? They will tell you it comes from ancestors. Well, that's a cheerful and fairly sanitized concept, but when you deconstruct it, ancestors are dead people. What is actually being suggested there is that there is a kind of ecology of souls, one energy threshold over, that is co-present with this world. Well, strangely enough, that's what the Irish myth of the Fae says. It says these are dead people. These are souls that linger in our environment, and this is what souls look like. Uh, Again, folklore is only a guide, but if what we are dabbling with, if what lies at the end of the road of shamanism is the dissolution of the boundary between life and death itself, then the million-year intuition that this was a path worth following will be dramatically vindicated. And one of the reasons I've preached DMT so furiously is I just want a larger body of people to take it so that we can compare data. Uh, we need to understand, you know, how is this possible? It raises a whole host of questions. One is, not only how is this possible, but then given that it is possible, how has it been kept secret? How can uh, millions of people go to the grave, raise children, hold jobs, so forth and so on, go to the grave, and the news of a doorway standing that agape hasn't penetrated. I mean, most people believe they're imprisoned in this world and that the only hope is maybe 15 years at the ashram and hideous acts of self-abnegation and control and so forth and so on. And actually, the boundary between us and an unspeakably bizarre world, it's 30 seconds away at any time, as long as you have DMT available to smoke. That's appalling to me. I mean, it means we don't know nothing. Yeah. Uh, if you talk about trying to map your experiences onto the um, myths, 
What if it's possible that you could look at the myths for information of mastery? That is, we've no longer masters of this doorway. We're trying to rediscover a mastery that's been held for thousands of years. Maybe there's something that we can find in the myths that tell us a behavior or a mode of being in that state that would be useful. For instance, catching the leprechaun and getting the pot of gold implies there's some kind of game we can play with them that yields some value. Yeah, well, the classical myth about leprechauns is that they want to keep you. If they catch you, they, or if you mess with them, they'll hold you. And then you have to bargain your way out. And the bargain is always the solution of a riddle. Notice that what's happening here is it's all about linguistic prowess. It's all about poetic skill. It's all about language ability. Only the eloquent, only the clever, only those who are masters of riddlery and pun are acceptable to these entities. Apparently, that's what they value. Why? I guess because they're made of language. So, and, and they themselves have, when I try to describe to people what they are or what they look like, I, various things can be said. They're like self-dribbling jeweled basketballs. In other words, they don't have faces or anything, not the little yellow leather jerkins and the curved pointed shoes, not that. Dribbling self, uh, self-dribbling jeweled basketballs and they use the language to make objects. That's what this language, how this language is different from ordinary English. English, we can make meaning. The DMT language makes objects. It's like a higher dimensional language. And so these things bound forward with the complete purpose of delighting you. And they reach into the air, into their bodies, in some, into some nearby invisible dimension, and they pull out what I would call words, puns, objects, hallucinations, things which manage to be all those things simultaneously. And they say, look at this. And it's purely designed to dazzle and astound. And then a colleague will elbow the little guy aside and say, no, look at this. And they're all in front of you, chirping, clamoring. And these objects that they make begin themselves to speak and float away and reproduce. And you're, you know, you've arrived. 30 seconds ago, you were sitting in a room with your grubby friend somewhere pursuing spiritual understanding. Now this is going on. And it's very hard to not be horrified. I mean, the cognitive dissonance, the neck-snapping switch of dimensions. And then after about three, four, five minutes, it retracts. It loses its uh, vitality, and it begins to pull away from you, almost like a boat pulling away from a dock. And in fact, I had one trip where, metaphorically, not having hands, they all turned and waved and said, déjà vu, déjà vu, which is, of course, absurd. Um, now, people can say all kinds of things. They can say, well, this is just the autonomous substructures of the psyche manifesting themselves, but sounds to me like a lawyer's explanation. 
Yeah. In light of that, uh, allow me to extend the skeptical line just, just a bit further. Of your description of the event, is it common to everyone who has participated, to your knowledge, does it represent 10%, 50%, 75%? Are they equal in description? Do they vary? Is this unique to your description? All good questions. Um, it's hard to smoke DMT, especially if you're not a smoker. It's harsh. Some people don't get enough. I would say of the people who smoke as much as I think you should smoke, 75% probably report something like this. It's, it's hard for people to report. I mean, I've had years and years of practice what I've just told you about this is an incredibly crumpled, compressed, <clears throat> edited version. Because what is really happening in there is unspeakably bizarre. Unspeakably bizarre. That seems, in fact, to be its quality, that it is unspeakable. And that, therefore, in order to speak of it, you have to make a leap of faith to this higher-order glossolalia-like language. Um, ayahuasca is a slow-release DMT if you deconstruct it pharmacologically, so that instead of it happening, DMT, instead of it happening in four minutes, it happens over four hours. Again, at very high-dose ayahuasca and at very high-dose psilocybin, these entities begin to emerge. When I take psilocybin, I, sometime in the second hour, I pass through a place which I've learned to recognize. It's a feeling, and I call it elf country. And there are no elves, but there's a feeling. And then I call them, you know, and following the directions of a favorite episode of I Love Lucy, I call them by saying, come in, little green men, come in, little green men. It's simply a permitting. It's simply an invocation. And then they approach like a Newari band from a distance. You can hear the brass and the drum and as they get closer. And, and it begins as a sound. It's very interesting. It begins as a sound. And as it gets louder, there comes a point where imperceptibly it becomes visible. And then all I can say is it gets bigger, just like someone marching toward you through three-dimensional space. And so it goes from being a little phenomenon on the horizon of your awareness to you're there, you're with them, you're playing the tuba, you're marching along, it's happening. And then they sort of peel off and march away and leave you in the same way they came. The archetype of this phenomenon, as far as I can tell, is the archetype of the circus. DMT is somehow the cosmic circus. And if you analyze what the circus is, it's a closed environment of permitted outrageousness that roves the straight landscape, uh, setting up in one town and then another and then another. And it's a, it's a, 
thing of wonder and light and carny people are loose they're not like you and me i remember in the little town i grew up in every fourth of july the carnival would come to town for cherry day and we kids were told we couldn't stay out after nine o'clock when the carnival was in town because there was just this aura more liquor was being consumed more people were staying up late so forth and so on and if you analyze the circus it has all the elements of the dmt thing i mean there's the center ring the clowns and Henry Munn, in a wonderful essay on psilocybin mushrooms called The Mushrooms of Language, describes them as self-performing self, uh, acrobatic bits of grammar, is how he describes them. This is clearly the same thing. Uh, the circus is a wonderful place for children, but it has behind that a dark, side i think my own my own earliest reminiscence of what i could call erotic awareness i must have been very very young under three because i was being held by people and i was taken to a circus and there was a woman there in a tiny g-string costume spinning hanging by her teeth up near the center and it was all there death and eros and risk and drama and you know i i got it so there's all that in the circus but then there's also the wiggy side you know uh the bearded lady the goat-faced boy the thing in the bottle that's all just off the main event and uh and then the circus packs up and leaves and everything is the same except there's some crumpled paper blowing around in the wind and every little boy and girl worth their salt wants to run off and join the circus so this is the archetype of of dmt a completely uh self-contained transformative uh world filled with all kinds of implications it's incredibly mercurial it's incredibly trickster like yes it's as though hermes had divided into a thousand subalterns all set going at once you're listening to the psychedelic salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time <laughs> how much, how much trouble have you, how much irritation have you had from the government because of your public and you're easily identified and all that sort of thing. Well, now this will be a hard swallow for all of us because the great faith of our culture is that paranoia is never inappropriate. Um, none. None. Ever. I don't know what that means. I'm paranoid enough to assume it must mean I work for them. Uh, how else could that be possible? The other possibility is that they are even stupider than we suppose. Now I realize that you are intelligent enough to realize that Terence was joking just then, but there are some poor souls floating around in the world who are convinced that the only reason Terence was never bothered by government authorities is that he was an undercover CIA asset. 
And this false assumption began with a podcast that I did many years ago in which Terrence was joking about the mushroom being an intelligence that he was working for. But uh, our psychedelic Alex Jones took that comment out of context and created a big conspiracy theory about Terrence being a narc. It's complete nonsense, of course, but if you know anyone who is into conspiracy theories, then you already know that facts makes no difference to them. Hopefully, the, this recent comment by Terrence won't be used to further this madness. Now, uh, you may wonder why I left the segment in where Terrence went into great detail explaining what a URL is, but uh, only passed out a flyer with his own URL on it without reading it out aloud. <laughs> well, uh, I left that bit in because I thought that for our younger saloners, it would be good to hear how we talked about the Internet back when it was only a couple of years old. In fact, in 1996, Americans with Internet access spent less than 30 minutes a month surfing the web. Now, while today there are over 4 billion people who are connected to the net, back in 1996, there were less than 40 million people worldwide who were connected. So it was a new toy that most of the people attending one of Terrence's workshop had not yet used. I'll put a link to Terrence's site in today's program notes, but it's an easy one to remember. You just go to levity.com, that's L-E-V-I-T-Y dot com, slash eschaton, E-S-C-H-A-T-O-N. And uh, that brings you to his home page, which says, There are three approaches to what is really one domain. Hyperborea, The Novelty Report, Terrence McKenna. And there are links to those three. And that entire site is still online and available for you to visit. And for a site back in 1996, Terrence was correct. It was a larger than average size site. Of course, uh, the 15 megabytes that uh, Terrence was bragging about as being the size of his uh, website, well, that's about one half the size of the podcast file that you're listening to right now. Now, uh, that's something to think about. Because I'm sure that uh, this single podcast file doesn't have twice as much information included in it as does that old site of Terrence's. Now on another note, I probably shouldn't keep promoting Uval Noah Harari's book Homo Deus until I do a full review of it here, but I couldn't help think about it when Terrence was talking about history being a genetic process and that we are possibly being controlled by our genetic codes as much as we are by our minds. And the reason I thought about Harari's book is that, well, that particular topic is how the book begins. Now before I go, I'd like to insert a little heresy here. Over the years, and on numerous occasions, we've heard Terence speculate that these otherworldly entities that ones that we sometimes seem to encounter in psychedelic states, are what he calls an ecology of souls. In other words, our ancestors. And before I state my heresy, I should add that on more than one occasion, I too have encountered what at the time I thought to be non-human intelligences. So I'm not putting down on the idea that something seemingly real and non-human does take place with a lot of people when they are in a psychedelic state. That said, I think that there may be another possibility for those experiences, 
and that is that they may be the result of us projecting our subconscious thoughts about dead people that we knew in such a way that makes their spirits seem alive to us. In other words, the spirits of your ancestors are still present in your mind. They linger there, to use Terence's phrase. Right now, in fact, as I think about my dad, his spirit is present with me. Could a similar but more powerful energy field of remembrance also be what Terence calls an ecology of souls? And uh, <laughs> in case you're wondering what I think about this, well, I'm sorry to say that you're going to have to just keep wondering because I'm still wondering about it myself. Having been trained as a lawyer, uh, where we had to be prepared to argue both sides of a case, I can argue both sides of that question as well. But before you accept Terence's ecology of souls metaphor, maybe you can have some fun if you keep your mind open to consider all possibilities when it comes to what happens after we die, and not just take Terence's opinion as gospel. <laughs> and on that cheery note, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>